And then he said to them, Today, in your hearing, the scripture is fulfilled. And all those who were present spoke favorably favorably of him. And they marveled at the eloquence of the words on Jesus' lips. They said, Surely this isn't Mary and Joseph's son. Joseph said to them, Jesus said to them, Undoubtedly, you'll quote me the proverb, Physician, heal yourself. And say, do here in your own country the things you did in Capernaum. But the truth is, prophets never gain acceptance in their hometowns. The truth is, there were many women who were widowed in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens remained closed for three and a half years and a great famine spread over the land. But it was to none of these that Elijah was sent but to a woman who had been widowed in Zarephath near Sidon. Recall, too, that there were many that had leprosy in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet. Yet not one of these was cured except Naaman, and he was a Syrian. And at these words, the whole audience in the synagogue was filled with indignation. And they rose up and they dragged Jesus out of town, leading him to a cliff on which the city was built, with the intention of throwing him over the edge. But he moved straight through the crowd and walked away. This is one of our sacred stories. Thanks be to God. Today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That dramatic, climactic line was the last line of last week's story but it opens this week's. You'll remember that Jesus had just come back to his hometown from a long absence. And when he was given the chance to preach in the synagogue, he preached a passage from Isaiah. He read, The Spirit of our God is upon me, because the Most High has anointed me to bring good news to those who are poor. God has sent me to proclaim liberty to those held captive, recovery of sight to those who are blind and released to those in prison to proclaim the year of our God's favor. And then dramatically, he rolled the scroll back up and took his seat and with every eye on him said, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He finished the sermon and they ate it up. They all spoke favorably favorably of him and marveled at the eloquence of the words on Jesus' lips, the story says. And then hungrily they began to imagine what Jesus was going to do for them. After all, he had performed such incredible miracles for the dogs, the nobodies, the foreigners. Surely he'd saved his best for his people. And in the midst of all of the well-mannered but pretty racist chatter, As Jesus is trying to decide exactly what to do, then comes that backhanded compliment. Surely this isn't Mary and Joseph's son. I don't know how many of us are familiar with the concept of microaggressions, but I strongly suspect this was one. A microaggression is an everyday, seemingly innocuous comment that is actually an intentional or unintentional slight against a marginalized person or group. To a privileged person, it might sound like nothing, but to more vulnerable ears, it might pack the punch of a lifetime of shame and exclusion. 
It's a mask we use to make racism or sexism or heterosexism or any type of supremacy sound more normal. It can be something like asking a single mother what her husband does or creating a special category to refer to someone as your gay friend. It can be something like saying, no, where are you really from? Or, you don't act very black. Or, you're so articulate. (laughs) Or, surely this isn't Mary and Joseph's son. Mary with her questionable sexual history. Joseph, who took them all to live with the mongrels in Egypt. Surely they couldn't produce a kid who teaches this eloquently. Peter Farley's The Green Book was just nominated for five Academy Awards, including Best Picture. And it chronicles uh, the concert pianist, Dr. Don Shirley, touring through the Deep South, accompanied by his driver and bodyguard, Tony Lip, in a particularly vulnerable moment. Standing in the rain at night, unsure where to go, Dr. Shirley delivers this line. Rich white people pay me to play the piano because it makes them feel cultured. But as soon as I step off that stage, I go right back to being just another black guy to them because that is their true culture. Jesus has eyes tuned to see his people's true culture. And he decides it's time that they see it as well. No, friends, please sit back down. I can imagine him saying, because I don't think you hear me. And then Jesus chooses two stories to tell, two stories perfectly selected to ease the mask off of their true culture. And this is the real skill of a prophet, to craft the right story, the right protest, the right action that will unmask a moment and reveal it for what it really is, to look at it as God sees it. And once the mask is removed, then we can make the very difficult choice to embrace change and become better, or the easy and tempting choice to lash out at the prophet and try to get our mask back. Doctor, heal yourself. That's, that's how the proverb goes, right? Jesus asked. And if I'm hearing you correctly, you're saying that you want me to do the things here in my own country that I did for the Gentiles across the border in Capernaum. Because, after all, we are God's chosen people. They are not. Is that right? And maybe some of the bolder ones nodded along and said, Amen. (laughs) Okay, Jesus went on. Well, I hear you, but I don't think you hear me. God is love. And you don't get to decide who is worthy of that love and who isn't. Uncomfortable silence. Think about the story of of, uh, Elijah and the widow. The truth is there were many women who were widowed in Israel in the days of Elijah when when heavens were closed for three and a half years and a great famine spread over all the land. And if you're right about how God works, then God would have sent Elijah to help them, but God didn't. God sent Elijah to a woman who had been widowed in Zarephath near Sidon. A Gentile who didn't even follow God's law. Oh, and remember the story of Elisha and Naaman. There were lots of people with leprosy in Israel at the time of Elisha. 
And if you're right about God caring more about us than them, then God would have sent Elijah to heal uh, us. But no one was cured except Naaman, a Syrian. I think that your sin is believing that you're somehow better than others, more entitled to respect, but the only difference between one of you and one of them is that you were born on this side of the Jordan and they were born on that side. So let's talk about this. I can hear Jesus plea. But please don't insult me by just shaking my hand and saying, good sermon, pastor, I really enjoyed it. You know, in Galatians, Paul writes about the fruits of the Spirit, how you can tell whether or not you're actually acting in accordance to God's Spirit. And people talk a lot about that, but not a lot of people talk about the fruits of the flesh listed just a few verses away. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy. These are some of the signs Paul gives us to let us know when what we're doing has nothing at all to do with God and everything to do with our own ego. Think about how a white Baptist crowd in the 1950s might have reacted if a preacher walked up to the pulpit and preached equality with people of color. Think about how a church crowd might react if I walked to a pulpit today and said, you know, the only difference between you and a Central American asylum seeker is that you were born on this side of the border, they were born on that side. You're both worthy of the same amount of respect. You can feel it, right? The resistance, the anger, the fruits of a defensive ego. You can hear the shouts of, that's entirely different, and you know it. And I imagine someone might have shouted about the same thing before the crowd dragged Jesus off to the edge of town to be lynched, assuming all the while they had God's blessing to do it, to get rid of this presence that so deeply threatened their way of life. But then, in a crazy twist ending, In the cherry on top that makes this story a microcosm of the whole gospel, Jesus walks straight through their hatred, like Israel walking through the Red Sea. There's an old story of a Hindu sage having the life of Jesus read to him. When he learned how Jesus was rejected by his own people in Nazareth, he exclaimed, A rabbi whose congregation does not drive him out of town is no rabbi at all. It seems that there is something about the presence of God that is inherently offensive to some part of our ego. It unmasks some part of our true culture that we would really rather it not. The presence of the purest, most unconditional love will always illuminate that within us that is uncomfortable sharing that love with others. And when that happens, we'll usually respond in one of three ways. First, we might fight. We might get defensive. We get angry. We self-justify. We do whatever we can to avoid giving up whatever it is from keeping us from truly loving our neighbors as God does. We might claim we earned that wealth. We never oppressed anybody. One need only open up Facebook or Twitter to see what this looks like right now. Second, we might take flight. 
When faced with God's presence and a call to justice, we might change the subject at a dinner table. We might look away from that boy with nothing to eat and nowhere to sleep. We write off that woman's story as just a special case. We go to a different church where they would tell us what we'd rather hear. We don't talk about the fact that our contribution to climate change is responsible for 21 people freezing to death this week in the Midwest. We look away. Or third, finally, we might become curious. We might open ourselves to vulnerably ask, why are we feeling this resistance? What is it within us being threatened? And then we can prayerfully take a step back and learn to be present and ask questions we might not like the answer to. How would the story have gone differently, I wonder, if the crowd hadn't fed on one another's tribal defensiveness? If they'd had the maturity to explore the third way and, and ask Jesus more questions? If they'd pushed back with their own experiences? Considered what it was that was making them so anxious? I wonder if they would have recognized the ways that their nationalism, that their exclusive theology was hurting people, that it was separating them from the God of unconditional love. And if it had gone differently, how would we be telling this story today? Learning to recognize this resistance at the unmasking of our true culture is essential for our growth. It's how we can know that we are still seeking out God's presence. And not just living in an echo chamber of self-justification. It is how we go about this work individually and as a community of becoming more like Christ. There are plenty of stories that Jesus could come in and share with us today that might spark a flicker of defensiveness, at least. Stories about how we manage wealth. Stories about how we connect with our neighbors, where our goods are sourced from. And that's good, and I pray that together we can learn to lean into these offensive places. But, you know, these sacred stories, they speak a unique word to each unique set of ears that hears them. And it's my impression that alongside this challenge, for us, this story also speaks a deeply needed word of comfort. And that word is when they drag you to the edge of a cliff, you're in good company. As I get to know this family more and more, I'm learning over and again that you're not strangers to the cliff, to the angry voices offended by your presence and the rough hands forcing you out. When we began seriously considering our applications to these positions, I began reading Dr. Gaddy's book on Northminster's history, Coming Home. And I was struck by the pain that this community has experienced. The rejection and isolation at the hands of other churches and denominational bodies. And by the way that God has sustained you through these unlikely sources. And since we've gotten here, we've heard story after story from each of you about the groups that made it clear to you that some part of you, your questions, your politics, your theology, your gender, your sexuality, your friendships, some part of you made you unworthy and unwelcome in their space. And how you have found refuge in this family. 
I have witnessed firsthand the mean-spiritedness, the fruits of the flesh borne by those who claim to be the church of God. And until discovering this group, I really didn't think I wanted anything else to do with it. It's my impression that each of us is here because we have an idea of what it's like to be dragged to the edge of town. And again, if that is you, this story says, you're in good company. So, blessed are you, agent of God's presence, when they want to throw you off a cliff, or more likely here, into a very cold bayou, because you're in good company. Blessed are you when they find your embrace so offensively wide that they tell you that you no longer have a place among them. You're in good company. Blessed are you when they hate you because you want nothing to do with their true culture. You're in good company. And in the end, may God grant us the grace to move straight through the hatred of the crowd and walk away together. Amen.